Okay, so it is February 1st, 2021, and we are in the second chapter of Jeremiah. It's going to be a good evening, saints. I mean, tonight is gripping. Suffice it to say, it's well worth the admission price. It was free to get in here. We live in unsettling times. People often pay shamefully exorbitant prices to watch movies that nobody should have to live through. Themes of adultery are often seen as emotional entertainment in our times. The Bible is primarily a wedding story and sometimes a war story. And sometimes wedding stories become war stories. Tonight, there is a plot twist. It's one that's excruciating in its implications. I, for one, am glad to know the rest of the story. To know the resolution in the final chapter. Amen. As we get into what can only be described as lurid details. Some... Details that would suggest, undoubtedly, an NC-17 type rating. It's important that you remember a few things. Prophetic literature is intended to impact your souls. Somebody say souls. 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 When I say that, I mean your mind, your will, your emotions. The book of Jeremiah uses thematic presentations of God as a husband and his people as a bride for that purpose. He also presents God as a father and his people as his son for that purpose. The imagery is to convey the desire of God for fidelity. It's also to draw us to powerful, emotional conclusions surrounding the subject of infidelity. Now, you will remember that we told you the Hebrew prophets could be viewed in some ways as spiritual artists, painting a picture to convey spiritual and emotional imagery. Do you guys remember this painting? Yes. Oh, man. This painting was not best analyzed by counting brushstrokes. But by engaging the larger concept that was being portrayed in it, this painting calls to mind fatherhood, sonship. You might even feel warmth or kindness when you look at it. Those are intangible qualities that are hard to describe, but it's what happens in your soul as you engage with that painting. You might even see discipleship in it without the words there. Well, that is not the imagery in chapter 2 tonight. Like everybody who's married to raise your hand. Oh, that's most of the room. Think about your wedding photos for a minute. You got that picture in your mind? I got one hanging in my bedroom above our desk. Now... Imagine that you're on your way home from work. You've finished your day early, earlier than expected. 
go to our next image. No, look at it. Engage with it. Notice the hand that is opening the door. Now consider that that's your hand. What's the impact of that picture on your soul? Does it make you mad? Glad? Sad? For many of the young husbands in the room, it probably immediately engendered feelings of impending judgment. What if that's not your hand on the door? What if you're one of the two other people in the room? Oh, you can look at it. It probably brings feelings of shame or justification or embarrassment. Is anybody's palms sweating? Anybody's heart rate go up? The word is living and active. Tonight, tonight should be a moving experience. Because in tonight's chapter, it's God's hand on the door. You'll remember last week's session ended with dramatic Hebrew imagery involving almonds. Last week, we covered the concept of Hebrew imagery as it relates to agriculture, as it relates to the things that it communicates, and I would like to remind you a few of those. The first association was that God was vigilantly watching. Something was about to happen, and he was attentive with the intention of acting. The second that we derived from almond in Hebrew culture was that restoration or judgment could be the result of the sign that he was seeing. But in either case, the third was that it was going to be imminent in rapid succession, that once it had started, it would come to fruition immediately. Of course, the second vision of Jeremiah concerning a boiling pot of judgment from the north brought crushing clarity to his soul about the nature of what he had seen with the almond tree. See, the almond tree represented that God was watching, that it could be judgment or could be restoration, but it was coming fast and the second vision answered it for him. This is the backdrop for tonight's chapter. You're about to encounter the why that corresponds to what God is going to do. We pray that this impacts your soul as you encounter Hebrew prophecy in its most visceral, real, living form. We want to ask a gentleman in this room to pray that the impact of God's word would have its impact and on our mind, will, and emotions and our heart this evening. Who would like to pray for us? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the impact that you're going to have on us tonight. Lord God, we humble ourselves before your word, Father. Lord God, we want to feel what you felt, Lord, and we want to see what you saw, mighty God. Father, we want to receive, Lord, what you want from us, from your word, mighty God. Lord God, impact us, mighty God. Move our hearts, Lord God, that we will be pressed forward to obedience. Lord, we love you. Lord, we want to partner with you. Father, we want to do your will on this earth. So, Lord God, meet this body tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. Well, Jennifer, you get chapter two tonight. Amen. Amen. I'm proud. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no travels, no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send, and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the springs of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land, and his towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves? By forsaking the Lord your God, when he led you into the led you in the way. Now why go to Egypt to drink water from Shihor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the, the river? Your wickedness will punish you, your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe in me, declares the Lord, the Lord uh, Almighty. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I have planted you like a choice vine, the sound and reliable stock. How then do you turn against me in, into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say, I'm not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you have behaved in the valley? Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, 
they will find her. He Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father and to stone you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. When then are there gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like ra raving lion. You of this generation consider the word of the Lord. I have been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness. Why do my people say, we are free to roam and we will come to you no more? Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding, ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes men find the lifeblood of the innocent of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent. He is not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed in Egypt as you were by Assyria, you, that you will also leave that place with your hands on your head. For the fear has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. Wow. Well, I'm going to state the obvious for us tonight as we enter into this chapter. This is a difficult one. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, we were reading this today. How hard and difficult this chapter is. But we're going to face it head on because that's what we do in this place. So we're going to get Brother Lintonius to begin for us. And he is going to read verses 1 through 3 to start us out. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his heart. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Wow. We want to challenge you tonight to avoid relegating this chapter to the metaphorical realm. Come on. It's more than just a metaphor. Yeah. We're yeah. actually speaking about the bride. God's covenant bride. Tonight. Amen. He speaks this way about scripture. Through scripture about his bride. This chapter was not meant to be abstract or metaphorical. Yeah. So as to rob it of its impact. No, you were meant to encounter this chapter in light of a literal personal relationship with God as your groom. That's why we began and introduced the chapter as we did. In the beginning of the relationship, God says, Israel was holy to the Lord. Did that make you hurt a little bit? Yeah. Israel was holy at the beginning of this relationship. At the beginning, God says, Israel is the first fruits of his harvest. Israel began as a devoted bride. But by the end of this story, she will, and by the end of this story, she will finish as a, as a devoted bride. Amen. But 
We're not in that chapter tonight. <laughs> we're in this chapter. Somebody say we're not in that chapter. We're not in that chapter. Let's read the promise given to Abraham because that is what the Lord is referencing when he says, all who devoured her were held guilty. Spencer, get Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 for us. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Man, in Spencer's translation it says, Whoever dishonors you, I will curse. Yes, this is the promise given to Abraham. This is the beginning of a nation. This is the choosing of God's nation. But you would best see this as the beginning of a marriage between God and His people that He will form. Amen. That is your best way to see these scriptures as a contract that God is giving to His bride. As a loving husband, the Lord would take action against anyone who threatened His bride. Amen. Man, any husbands in this room? Come on. Come on. Yeah. Man, if someone threatens your bride, wouldn't you not take action immediately and swiftly? Absolutely. That is what God is saying to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That is what God feels about his people. This was true. It is true. And always will be true. Amen. We would all do well to remember that. God's interaction with Israel is not the same as every other nation on the planet because it's His bride. Any of your husbands would stop loving your bride just because of a mistake? No. That is how God feels about His bride. What we are encountering is God fighting for the purity of the future generations of Israel that would become all that He said that they would. Amen. This is God's covenant to them like a husband would to his bride and saying, hey, I will take you from, I will take you from Egypt. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my own. I will ultimately wash you with the word and purify you. As we get into verse 4, you should ask yourself a question. God does use nations to discipline Israel. Which one of them ever walked away unscathed from it, though? I feel really bad, like the king's got his queen sitting next to him, and she's done something wrong, so he tells some other servant, you need to strike the queen. But then he kills that servant for striking his queen. <laughs> hey, let's pick up in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you claims of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in you, that they strayed so far from you? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Wow. Remember in Israel's history, the patriarchs were faithful. Israel came from good stock. During the days of the judges, unfaithfulness became epidemic. During the time period of the kings, Israel's unfaithfulness became cyclical. We've now reached the place of unavoidable judgment. One of the forms of that judgment is that you become exactly like what you are worshiping. I'm going to read to you out of Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. Our God is in heaven. 
he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot smell, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, but they cannot they have feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Listen, before we read verse 8, this sounds a little bit like a riddle of some kind. Like a strange tongue twister that you're reading until you begin to realize the point of the psalmist in verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. He's saying that trust in these idols will make a living, breathing man as dead as the idol that he worships. Israel strayed so far from God that she degraded herself and became like the heinous idols that she was worshiping. Look, there are profound implications in this truth concerning the sin of pornography. What? It's just a video. It's just an idol. It's just an image that men have poured their souls into. Pornography and the progression of it in the lives of those who indulge in it. They become as worthless, lifeless, and debased as the image that they worshipped. As we go to verse 6, consider that idolatry was not an Old Testament thing. To all seven churches in the book of Revelation, listen to this phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning that even among those that attended the seven churches of Revelation, some of them might be so carried away with idolatry that they had ears but could not hear. Let's uh, continue with verses 6 and 7. But did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance the testament. Wow, there are so many things being expressed in these verses. It is wrought with revelation. As the favor of the Lord began to withdraw, they didn't notice. It was a slow withdrawal of his favor, and it just went unnoticed by his people. They didn't ask, where is the Lord? Where is he going? Where did he go? This kind of imagery ought to remind you of Samson. As the favor of the Lord withdrew from his life, he didn't even notice it. And we all know where he ended up. The Lord had sustained their lives in unlivable places. This ought to remind you about the desert experience. The miracle manna that rained down from heaven from the Lord. Because he is a groom who took care of his bride. But his bride had forgotten the goodness of the groom. The biggest implication is the defilement of the land. The land was party. To the covenant, the man, the land, and the plan. They were all working together, and it was the Lord's will for them to do so. The land was part of the covenant, just as the people were. And two things, somebody say two things. Two Two things. things. Two things pollute the land more than any other. 
The first is idolatry, which is always associated with sexual immorality. Trister is going to run us through Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 20. Now look, there's something you need to catch here. Leviticus 18 is God saying to the Israelites in the covenant that in the Ketubah he's giving to them. And he's saying, don't do these things because the other nations did them. And look what happened to them. In Leviticus 18 verse 20, God lays these commands out. He says, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. For you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Say detestable. Detestable. We need to learn to repeat that in these coming times. The detestable. Bible says it is detestable. So if a Christian ministry just got thrown off of Twitter, and they did, for simply saying that a man who believes he is a woman is detestable, they got thrown off Twitter for agreeing with God, and that happened today. That is detestable. Remember that word, because that issue is going to become more gray in the coming days. Verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal That's and next. defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Can you, can you hear some of the language that Jeremiah is going to, going to employ in the coming verses? Do not defile, listen to this, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Why? Well, it's obvious it's sin, but there is something behind it God is trying to get their attention with. Because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. Now, it's not just for Israel. It's also for the foreigners within Israel. But the purpose is because they're living on the land with Israel and it would pollute the land. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land... It will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. The land is the third party in the covenant between man and God. Now, the second thing that polluted the land more than any other. So the first one is sexual immorality pollutes the land. The second is bloodshed. And that's in Numbers 35, 33 to 34. It says, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood had been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. Man, you see a personal connection God has here now. This is the land I dwell in, and I cannot tolerate this, and neither can the land. Look, this, this passage is rich, and we don't have time to teach on it tonight. But he literally uses two alternating words. One is Yasab and the other is Shekan. It's a land where you reside, but it's a land that I'm deeply intertwined with. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In other words, you're temporary, 
I'm permanently connected to this land. As we move forward, we need to draw your attention to one more facet by repeating Jeremiah 2.6 for you. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? Now, that may not strike you the way that it strikes a Jew when they hear it. But this is a Jewish book, and it's not a Norwegian book. (laughs) This is the beginning of God's very first commandment, the very first wedding vow that the people take. Come on. Remember the emphasis on Deuteronomy in the book of Jeremiah. They found it during the reign of Josiah, which is when Jeremiah began to prophesy. Listen to Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 7, because it is how the first commandment is quoted in Hebrew circles. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. The first commandment is a wedding vow, and it reminds the people of how they came into marriage as a monogamous thing with Yahweh God. In Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah, God is recounting his powerful acts of love and mercy that won their hearts. Here in Jeremiah, he is describing a thousand-year love story as a predicate for a charge that he's going to bring against his wife. Come on. It's something along the lines of saying, I've been good to you, baby. Hadn't I? I've been really good to you. Haven't I? So that she will agree, and then you can draw attention, after knowing who the Father is, to knowing yourself and your own behavior. That is what he's doing, and he's about to lay out a court-style case to bring her and you to a place of conviction as you examine his character and his behavior in contrast with your own. Listen, as we proceed to get to that charge, I'm going to walk you through a few verses. It's important to remember, this is from the Lord's perspective. When he says a thousand years, we got a little insight into Jeremiah personally last week. Now this is God seeing his people from the beginning, the bride that he had rescued. As we cover that, in other Linton reads verses 8 For me, we're going to comment on that. We're going to work through 9 and 10, and then we're going to start to dig into the charge that he gave. Pick up when you're ready, Linton. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Bill following worthless idols. The priest, the men who are supposed to carry the law, they're guilty and they didn't ask where I was. The leaders, they rebelled against me. And all of the people that are following them. Man, man, the prophets, maybe those who are supposed to be hearing from God. No, they profess God's name and prophesied by Baal. From the least to the greatest, the people have become unfaithful. He is a faithful God, and he's demonstrating that from the beginning he has been faithful. But from the least to the greatest, his people have turned against him, even those who were supposed to represent him. Let's pick up in verse 9 and 10 and see what else he says. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. I want to pause on that for just a moment before we hit verse 10. 
When from the least to the greatest in a nation there is sin, be warned, it will affect children's children. Sin has a consequence, if even not an eternal one. There are effects when one man chooses to sin on the rest of his family. And he's warning them in advance of what will happen as a result of their behavior. As Judah continues with this, I just want to drop a Calvay Comer on you. If God will bring a charge against his own nation, his own land, and his own house over this behavior, what do you think he'll do to this nation? Get verse 10. Cross over to the coast of Kidron and look. So we know you knew exactly where Kittim and Kedar were. That was top of the mind awareness. We pulled out a topical dictionary and started to work through a map. He's moving from the pagan western area, like kind of the edge of the world map for them on the western corner, to the pagan east out towards the Saudi Arabian desert. So within their worldview, we're speaking about the furthest extremes west the east. And he's illustrating a point. These nations have shown devotion to their God, historically speaking. We're going to pick up reading and Nick will expound upon that. See if there has been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? If they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Lord's building his case. He's building his charge. Right now, and we can see that. Can you believe that from Cyprus all the way to Saudi, that these nations have more devotion to their pagan gods than what the Lord sees in his own people? That is heart-wrenching. Jeremiah, he's presenting the violation of their very first wedding vow, the first commandment. I know that it's easy to put this in the abstract. It's safe there. It's easy for us to think about this as somewhere else in a galaxy far, far away. Would you say that the average Christian shows as much devotion as the average Muslim? Not by a long shot. That's very much like saying from the pagan west to the pagan east, they show more devotion to their God than my people do to me. Wow. You know, in light of that, many people don't realize that Paul does exactly the same thing in the book of Romans as Jeremiah and the Lord are doing right here in this chapter. In Romans, Paul illustrates that both Jews and Gentiles are equally as sinful. They are equally at fault. And that God has a destiny for Israel that Gentiles can be grafted into. Amen. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 21 for you. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the beginning of a drift away from the Lord. When your thinking becomes futile, your heart slowly becomes darkened. You might not even realize what is going on in the moment, and yet you are drifting away from the Lord. It is not the Lord who's retracted himself from you. The Lord is solid. He is a rock. He remains in his place. It is the people 
who drift away from him. I'm going to read Romans 1.23, and I want you to see the language that Paul uses. Most scholars and most Christians would say that the book of Romans is the best expository work that we have in all the Bible. That Paul is really building a legal case. But look how Paul is really just following the same template that Jeremiah wrote. In Romans 1.23, it says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God... For images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Can you see the same language that is in Jeremiah as in Paul's work? Listen to Romans 125. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Both Paul's work and Jeremiah begin with an awful exchange that descends into more wickedness. Look, we did not have time to repeat the teaching on the election of the nation of Israel here, but suffice it to say that even though these things are true, their destiny remains as outlined in Romans 8 and 11. You remember them as the predestined nation. For now, let's focus on the celestial effects of this kind of behavior. Linton, read verse 12 for us. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Be appalled who? Heavens. heavens. This reminded me of Deuteronomy 32, where Moses says, Hear me, O heavens, listen, earth, as, as my words fall like rain. There's celestial horror with what is happening. The things in the heavens are to be horrified by what is happening. I want you to see Jeremiah 2.12 in the ESV. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. It's an interesting word. It's a less dynamic translation, and it's a more accurate translation. Let me show you a little pie chart for the ways this word is used. Become utterly ruined. Laid waste, desolate. Where are we talking about? Are we talking about Jerusalem? No. No. We're talking about the heavens. See, Israel is a prince with God. And Israel is doing something that is appalling, shocking. It's causing desolation even in the heavens. Just like infidelity causes desolation in a marriage. Oh, come on. God is saying, in my home, this is wreaking havoc. And the reader understands that this kind of behavior in his home would wreak havoc, cause desolation. We don't have time to comment on the way in which this may relate to the abomination that causes desolation spoken about by Daniel in later times. But what is important to realize is that terrestrial, earthly infidelity, it has celestial consequences. We tend to think of the heavens as affecting the earth, but it goes the other way as well. The heavenly realms are affected by things done on earth and vice versa. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 34, verses 4 through 5 should remember this from the celestial powers teachings. 
all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved, and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. We don't have time to go into the linguistics this evening, but this is related to the passage we're reading in Hebrew imagery. That something that has been so dried up and deprived of life that it is desolate, dead, dying, and is raveling up. Anybody remember your Jericho rose for marriage counseling the other night? The imagery here is that you've left it on the back dash of your car long enough to where it cannot be revived. It's curling in itself. Verse 5. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. The people I have totally destroyed. Now, saints, in this particular passage in Isaiah, this is a really good thing for those that love the Lord, a really good thing for Israel. But this time in Jeremiah, it's not about Edom, the one with ancient hostility. It's about God's own people in the effect that it is having on the heavens. But consider that as we hear in verse 13, the reasoning for these events. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water and have dug their own systems, broken systems that cannot hold water. We're really getting into the why now in verse 13. Two sins. Sin number one. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Hey, that should remind you of a certain passage in Proverbs chapter 5. The Lord has some wedding language for his people during this time. Listen to Proverbs 5 and verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Your streams of water in the public squares? No. Let them be yours alone. Never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You remember he said, hey, in her youth, she was faithful to me. In her youth, she was pure. She was holy. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. Somebody say amen. Amen. May you ever be captivated by her love. I cannot wait for Friday. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? (laughs) Now, when you think about that, understand that not only is there nothing perverse about the marriage bed, it is always holy. God uses this language in describing his relationship with his wife, Israel. And he is upset that she has forsaken him as the spring of living water. And I know you're such spiritual people. You're like, oh, that's because he's talking about a fountain of his word. Mm-mm. Well, that is not the biblical norm. I'm not saying that it doesn't relate to that. I'm telling you that the more consistent biblical imagery is she is being like a wife that is rejecting him intimately and she should be captivated by him and him by her but he's laying out the case i have been faithful and i did not hold your attention because it couldn't be held 
You're pouring out your water in the streets. Now tell me, husbands, that's a little different than just reading an ancient prophecy. That yep. strikes in a visceral way, doesn't it? Yes. Now the second sin that they committed brings that even further. The second sin is that they chose another source. Not only did they forsake the fountain that they had with the Lord God Almighty, they chose another source. They chose a broken one. They chose an inferior companion. I want to tell you that every companion is inferior to the Lord regardless of who it is because he's the best companion and partner that someone can have. Look, we were talking while we were studying. We were trying to think of some of the worst movies that relate this concept of infidelity. And you know what is a common theme in all of these movies? Is that when someone breaks their covenant with their spouse, they go and choose an inferior mate, and that is what is usually the death nail in the covenant. Yeah, come on, ladies. Let's talk about it for just a minute. When you're sitting around with your girlfriends and you find out that one of them cheated, you all want to know what the other woman looked like. God is going to lay out the case. You chose an inferior companion. You chose gods of Egypt. You chose the gods of Assyria. They're fugly. Look, it's a heavy topic, but you have to imagine God's emotion here. The word says that he is a jealous God, and he's watching his people choose inferior companions. Let's move forward in verse 14. Is Israel Israel a servant by birth? A, A servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Now the question is, is plunder to whom? We read the the scripture earlier where God is saying, be appalled, O heavens. Can you imagine the heavens watching this? Can you imagine after Deuteronomy 32, every nation getting its inheritance and Israel is lucky enough to get God? And God's looking at what's happening. Why then has he become plunder? The, The question is, to who has he become plunder? It's plunder to foreign gods. They have offered themselves to foreign gods, and now they're becoming open to plunder by foreign gods. As we turn to Deuteronomy 32, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. Understand a frightening principle. It was true for Israel. It's true for us. It's something that must be understood. The worst thing that can happen is God give you over to the consequences of your own choices. It's the worst thing that can happen. You get duller and duller as you participate in idolatry and you don't even realize that you are becoming plunder to demonic sources. You think you're getting something out of it, but they're quite literally getting something out of you. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Listen to this language. In a desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Does this sound familiar? Jeremiah is just quoting the book of Deuteronomy. 
like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone. Somebody say alone. 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 The Lord in monogamy. <laughs> the Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. This generation of Israel is abandoning the covenant through their infidelity. Not all Israel, not all Israel that there would ever be, this generation is doing it. How do we know that? Because Jeremiah hasn't done it. Paul makes the exact same argument in the book of Romans. It's not as if the promise failed. There is always a remnant. I would like to go ahead and hand out a few passages. David Hall, why don't you take Galatians 4, 28 through 5, verse 1. And Daniel Cho, if you get 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. Andrew Hayes, if you get Romans 8, 15 through 17. Go ahead and pick up in Galatians 4 when you get to it. And this would be on the topic of was Israel born to be a servant or a slave? And you'll see the answer as we progress. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul's right there. In our day of social justice, in equity. Doesn't this sound a bit harsh? Get rid, get rid of the slave woman's son. Well, that's not equality. God is saying, get rid of the one that is bound over to slavery, that is not born of the free line, that has not learned to participate in the divine seed. And yet they both came from the same father. We're speaking about children of the same house in this context. Yeah. Read verse 5, 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Somebody say stand firm. Stand, stand firm. firm. To stand firm is a choice in the house of God. Amen. You may have all been born to the same father, but we have a choice as to whether we stand in slavery or we stand in the freedom that we have in Christ. Amen. Keep reading. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened We're standing in a day in Jeremiah where they had been burdened again by a yoke of slavery despite the fact their father and their husband had freed them before. They've gone back to their vomit like so many Christians that we have known. But we must learn like Jeremiah to stand in the truth, to stand firm in Christ's freedom regardless of the circumstances. 2 Peter 2, 17-22. That's interesting. Pause there, Mr. Cho. It's interesting that we had those two main things that defiled the land just a few verses ago. And again, what Peter is preaching to the people about 
are these lustful desires that are grabbing a hold of them and controlling them like they are a little puppet. Wow. Look at verse 19. Let's continue. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and over, overcome, they are worse off at the end than when they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Wow. Then the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and so that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Hey, this is not going to happen to us in this place. Amen. Somebody say, I gotta set that dial. I gotta set that dial. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about knowing who your groom is. Knowing who your father is. Knowing who you are. Setting those dials and not forgetting to set them time after time. We're in the middle of a sermon series about this kind of setting dials of discernment in your own life. Knowing who your father is. Knowing who the groom is in your life. Knowing who you are. When you begin to set those dials in your life, this will not be you. You will not be a storm without rain. You will not be just uh, stating boastful, empty words that don't have any weight. You will be a bride of Christ who understands who you're married to and who lives in faithfulness to him. One of the things that I love about the Newer Testament is that the Newer Testament is really expounding on the Older Testament. Yeah. Yes. There was never a standard that was thrown out. It's just better explained. In 2 Peter, that second chapter, could you go back to verse 17 and pick up those very first few words? I wonder what Peter had been reading. I wonder what he had been thinking about. These people are springs... Without water. See, the issues have always been the same. Yep. You're going to have to know the Father, and you're going to have to know yourself. Amen. Then you're going to have to wash in the labor and become who you were called to be. These problems are not unique to Israel. The promises were unique to Israel, but the problems, they span across all mankind. And one of the things that Christians love to do is grab hold of the promise and push off the problems on Israel. The Newer Testament writers looked at prophecies just like this one in Jeremiah, and they applied them to their congregations. Not just the promises, the problems as well. Hey, remember what we said earlier. The two dominant themes in Jeremiah is a husband and wife relationship and a father and son relationship. Hey, read that in mind, Romans 8, 15 through 17. Can we hand that out? For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Now pause right there. Your relationship, drawing from the Older Testament, the father-son relationship... You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again. You received a spirit that makes you a what? A son. It does not make you a slave to fear. Now think about that for a second. When we read this verse, we often get it into our minds. Well, we're not slaves to fear. We are sons of God, like the song says. 
What you don't realize is that this is not just in your day and in your car being a slave to being afraid all the time. When you become a slave to anything, just like what Jeremiah says, you are being a slave to an archon. And he is plundering you by the way of fear. That fear in your life and in your heart that you allow is an archon taking a hold of you. And notice that the word says, again. See, you're in the position of having been freed, made holy, being a devoted wife, and you're running back to what was enslaving you. Look, and that's we, a New Testament passage. Yeah. As we get to verse 15, I want to remind you the context of what we just read. The question was, was Israel a slave from birth? And the answer to that question is absolutely no. You, you were born as a slave from birth and were allowed to be grafted in to the Abba Father that Romans 8 is speaking about. That is the context of what he wants for his people and it will take the Spirit of God to renew it in them. Brother Linton, let's pick up in verse 15. Lines have roared. They have routed him. They have laid waste his land. His towns have burned and deserted. Now almost every commentary in your footnotes, they're, they're going to say that these verses refer to the nations of Egypt and Assyria. And I'm sure they do. I just think it's kind of the low-hanging fruit. It seems to us that we're still speaking about the celestial realm. That we're saying that Israel doing this is causing lions in the celestial realm to plunder them and devour them. What follows in verses 16 and 17 is the earthly fallout from the desolation that is happening in the heavens. Now, if you think about our star powers teachings, that might make more sense to you. Um, Let's let's just move on, though, because there's a lot of good things to get to tonight. Are you ready? Let's pick up in verse 16 and 17. Also, the men of Memphis and Clannish have shaved the crowns of your head. Have Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Look, we don't have time to discuss every detail of this, but you're going to find out that these cities are later crushed by Babylon and they take captives out of them. But forsaking the Lord, that wellspring of life, consider that in view of Deuteronomy 32, the worldview that we learned about during our celestial powers teach it. They're serving other gods, other deities, lords of foreign lands, and he's saying, you're bringing this on yourself. This is not going to go well for you when you're depending upon these other sources. Forsaking me, the spring of living water, will end badly because they're broken and beyond repair and they need me as much as you do. Do you remember how Naaman wanted dirt from Israel? Well, what happens if you're standing as an Israeli on Israeli dirt and you're supposed to be worshiping the God of Israel, but you actually are worshiping other gods? Well, you may get taken out of your land and go worship them on their dirt. Giving you over to the very thing that you're being seduced by. Verse 18 and 19. Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shavuot? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Okay, let's pause right there one moment. Drink water from the Shavuot? Egypt? We're talking about a branch off of the Nile here. Why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? 
that the river is speaking about the Euphrates River, Assyria. Keep going, Forrest. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backslide will rebuke you. <laughs> Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Wow. So because there's desolation happening in the heavens, these nations that are surrounding Israel... Their actions and what they are doing is a reflection. They're reflecting each other. Earth is reflecting heaven and vice versa. So we have these nations around Israel. This is happening because their wickedness, which is going after these foreign gods as lovers, it's punishing them. You will not find their treatment as good as my treatment, the Lord is saying. I am yours. You belong to me. I have treated you well. Look at what I've done. He's laid it out for his people up to this point. And he's saying, now let me contrast that with how these people treated you. Man. You see how bad they've, they've treated you. Before Nick moves to this next point, I want to give you a very practical example. You can get into this habit of doing wrong and coming to leaders and the leaders telling you, stop doing wrong. And, and you're almost waiting for, for a punishment so you feel better about yourself. Uh, I'm actually thinking of a very close-to-home specific example. Well, at some point, understand that the fullest form of judgment, it's not anything that the leaders would do. It's when God speaks to those leaders and says, don't do anything. I'm going to handle this. I am going to make sure that this person receives exactly what they're asking for. The longer that you spend time in idolatry, the more dull you are to anything that's happening around you, and that's how you wake up in a place that you never thought you could be. It's true. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I hope I can become a crack whore. Nobody ever does that. It happens slowly. It happens a hit at a time. <laughs> A month not repented from again and again and again until you were in a place you never thought you could be. That is what is happening to God's people Come on. right here. Wow. And there's one specific reason for this. They lost something. Let me point your attention back to verse 19 and a phrase right here. When you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. The genesis of all of this. What is going to keep us on the path of righteousness. The genesis of that is having an awe, a fear, a reverence for our king. You know, the church at Ephesus, they were warned about this in a very similar fashion. Praise God that they heeded that correction. You know, you got to ask yourself a question. Am I going to heed this correction tonight? Mm. You know, the Lord has so many amazing things that as we're dialing in, as we're getting this focus right, we have so many amazing things to go do for the Lord. We have so much direction, so much revelation, so much richness that He wants to pour on us. The beginning of all of that is a healthy fear of Him. Amen. A healthy awe of Him. To revere His name. Yeah. That will propel us into everything else that He has for us. 
Look, they're being punished by their own decisions. The Lord is letting them eat the fruit of their desires, giving them what they want. Man, may we never get what we want, right? May our delights be in the Lord. As, hey, let's pick up. as Justin takes you into the next verse, if we wanted to, we could spend 10 hours showing you that that is the roadmap for the book of Romans. You won't find that in, in commentaries, but a study of Jeremiah and a study of Romans reveals it. The entire first chapter of Romans is about that. And if you start there, you end in the right places. You can figure it out. If you start reading Calvin's work, then you end up as confused as him and his followers. Yeah. I would encourage you that the prototype for everything in the Newer Testament is what was already written in the Older Testament. And it revolves around a central principle. We've tried to introduce it to you early on. There remains a calling for Israel, but God will always discipline his own people. He'll divorce a generation he will discipline a generation, but his promise will never change. Amen. All right, let's pick up in verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. You know, this verse is hotly debated in its translation. I want to show you what Rashi says about it. This is Rashi's translation of the Masoretic Hebrew text. And it says, For of old I broke your yoke, I tore open your yoke bands, and you said, I will not transgress. Ooh, wow. That's a little bit different than the English translation we're reading, right? Yeah. The English says long ago, You broke off your yoke, you tore off your bonds, and you said, I will not serve you. Well, the Masoretic puts it in a different light. But look, fighting over specifics of the translation variances is beyond the scope of our evening. Remember, the important issue at hand is the picture being painted and the impact it is aiming at. A bride who was freed from slavery and took public vows at Sinai, she was happily married, treated well, and became a prostitute. She had the best house she could ever live in. She was brought out of a house like that formerly and became the same thing. So let's, uh, let's, let's zero in on this for a little bit because there's this extraordinary teaching called marriage symbolism. I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe you can Google it and find it somewhere. Israel married God at Sinai. Cloud uh, uh, surrounded it as a hopa. God led Israel like a groom would lead his bride somewhere. He broke off their yokes. They said in Exodus 24, 7, we will do all that you have said. Yeah. They took vows to him. And he is reminding them of that. And they have broken their vows, but he has not. Well, it's a good thing that's only Israel, right? Mm-hmm. See, this is the purpose of knowing the Father and then knowing yourself. You start to see in that contrast that he has been very good to you and you have not been as good to him. This causes you to cry out for more of his spirit in you so that you can respond because the husband initiates and the wife 
she reciprocates. And they become more like each other over time. Amen. Now, you probably won't get that in a Homes of Honor teaching or, I don't know, in your latest Christian book written by Gary Trent or David Smalley or a pseudo-psychologist posing as a pastor. But do you know where you will get that from? Reading the Tanakh, (laughs) which is where every New Testament writer got what they were writing from. Look, Jeremiah's presenting their state now as being like a prostitute under every spreading vine. But their present state, it started long ago. How did they get there? How do all of it? Well, it didn't happen all of a sudden. It started long ago with the choices being made. Little by little, they did not drive out their enemies. Little by little, they prostituted themselves. They are presently being a prostitute, but they started as a choice vine. God is reminding them of that. You remember where we started this? I chose you, and now you are presently doing this. Now look, you could see this incrementally increasing throughout the Tanakh. Hosea's whole life was aimed at averting this behavior. And Hosea came roughly 100 years before Jeremiah. Look what Hosea had to say about their process into becoming this. This is Hosea 3.1. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Man, that's pretty rough, isn't it? But again, God is showing the impact to Hosea, how he feels, and Hosea has to transfer that. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. He never stopped loving her, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Get it. I don't know exactly what those are. But the truth is, is that this process started well before Jeremiah steps on the scene. Apparently they loved many things other than the Lord their God. In Hosea 1, 1 through 2, Eris going to take you about the reigns of the kings that Hosea is going through. So in Hosea 1... The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaz liked to sacrifice his kids in the fire, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. After Hezekiah comes Manasseh, one of the most unfaithful kings in Israel's history. Okay, The point is, is God was having compassion and pity on his people a hundred years before we get to the almond uh, prophecy. 100 years before we get to the uh, boiling pot from the north, he wants to change his wife's behavior. He does not want to publicly discipline his wife. But it has to happen. Let's pick up in verse 21. There's something that I just have to talk to you about with a vine. It's, It's important to me. I have planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt... I'm going to give you a hint. Your problem's not your race. It's not your ethnicity. Your your problem is not some socioeconomic status. These people came from the patriarchs. They came from reliable stock. They were a choice vine. People don't end up in motels on Highway 6 living like vagabonds because of where they were born or came from. They're deceived by the idols they serve. 
because they love the idols they serve. I wanted to share with you a gem. Is that okay? Like I needed some levity in this. This is Psalm 80, and I'm going to read you verses 14 through 18. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. This is Israel speaking to God about Israel. Come on. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Are you ready for it? Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. This is a cry for a Jewish Messiah, the man at God's right hand to restore the vine that is Israel. This should be our prayer. Come on. It is the very purpose of Messiah to restore the vine, to bring her to fidelity, to cure the infidelity of the nation, to restore God's bride, not replace God's bride. That diminishes Messiah. That makes his task smaller. No, Messiah restores the bride and bonus round, he adds to her. Now that you've had a little refresher, Verse 22 for me, please. Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. That's yucky. Look, before I expound upon that, I want to draw back to the original image that we looked at. There was a picture of the chapter that we're in. A few of you have been unfortunate enough to be the one with your hand on no, the door. No, not that picture. That, that one. one. A few of you, because we live in a sinful world, have been unfortunate enough to have your hand on the door in this. I'm sorry. We are growing in Christ and the world is being renovated. But what I want to tell you is we're reading this passage, lest it feel like it's in a galaxy far, far away, is that every one of you have been inside the room. That you have committed adultery against your king and then pretended as if nothing happened to save face. Consider that as we read verse 22 again, and we expound on it. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. This is describing an adulterous encounter, one where afterwards a bath was taken, a long shower was taken, and then, hey, how are you, hubby? Nothing has ever happened. Pretending as if the sins had just been washed away because they brushed over them. And yet the stain of the sin was within her and could not be washed away. It had gone down into her soul. Listen, God is painting a powerful picture, one that is designed to impact our souls this evening. There are certain things that cannot be washed away. You have to face the bronze altar. 
I got to ask you tonight, husbands, wives, hearing about a bath that was taken and then pretending as if nothing ever happened, does that stir your soul? Does that cause an emotional impact? See, God is saying that's what the unfaithfulness of my people has been like because they sin and then walk into my assembly and act as if nothing ever happened because they took a shower. Maybe the best thing that we could do is hear an ancient cry out of the book of Job that illustrates to us our dire need and the solution to the problem. It's Job 9 picking up in verse 30. Even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Man's despairing in this moment. He's not a man like, the me, that, like me that I might answer him. This is in reference to the Lord Almighty. That we might confront each other in court. Wow. If only there was someone, somebody say someone. Someone! To arbitrate between us. To lay his hands upon both of us. Someone to remove God's rod from me. So that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear. But as it stands now... I cannot. The whole Bible has been aiming at curing infidelity through Messiah and pointing to the fact that you cannot remove that stain of sin by taking a shower, by cleaning up your act and putting on a smile. Look, the psalmist earlier asked for the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. Job is crying out for that man, the arbitrator, the one who might give you the chance to be redeemed from your infidelity. Not a people a long ways, a long time ago in a faraway place, but us. That arbitrator was first and foremost the Jewish people. It was for Israel. They needed it. They were crying out for it. And we've been given a chance to cry out for God to move for his bride. That fidelity might enter them and us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's desire. This is what he wants to do. This is the picture that the prophets are painting. How bad it is, but what God will do if we will follow him. Look, I'm going to give you a secret. This exact concept carries all the way through to Revelation 19, and it is the culmination of these events. With Israel as his pure, holy, righteous bride. But saints, I've got to tell you, that's not the chapter in tonight. (laughs) We have to continue to face the infidelity that we are in and put it to death. Let's take a look at verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the bill. See how you have behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there. Goodness. You're a swift she-camel, huh? How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after bills. Hey, remember that little incident that we had in Numbers 23? You remember Balak? Do you remember Balaam? This is the valley and the setting that we are talking about. The Baals of Peor. You know, when they defiled themselves, when they married foreign women, when they fell for that scheme of the enemy, you know, what actually was happening to them was not very pleasant. You see, they thought that they were the ones that were defiling others, but in fact, they were bending down and getting defiled themselves. Literally. They were the ones that were on the receiving end. And the Lord is reminding them about that. Hey, you think that you're being the manipulator? You're the ones being manipulated. 
You're a prison bride. Now, how you behaved in the valley. Most recently, we have King Manasseh. And he did some really ugly things. Now, because of his own self-deception, because of his own uh, carnal desires and lusts, he was led to sacrifice his own children in this valley. Now tell me that that doesn't happen today. Tell me that own carnality and our own lusts don't cause us to sacrifice the futures of our children. We're seeing it happen all around us. You know, Jeremiah 15.4 makes that reference about Manasseh very clear. It says, I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Now, the Lord goes as far as to say that Manasseh is the worst. He didn't even conjure up in his mind that somebody could possibly do the kind of wickedness that Manasseh did. That is what happens when you go down this slippery slope and you get deceived to the point where you don't even know which way is up anymore. Look on that note, because we are going to move on. (laughs) On that note, when God says... I never conceived of this kind of evil. That is very much like that husband in the picture that threw open the door and was just shocked by what he saw. And the prophets want you to feel that. God took Jeremiah through a process where Jeremiah was feeling that so that it would leave an impact on his soul that he could transfer to the nation. So I know some of you are such sweet little Christian people, you don't like to look at that image. You also don't like to read the book of Jeremiah and think about yourself. Your testimonies are things, I've always loved the Lord. You liar. You need to look into this mirror. It'll leave a mark on your soul that will be there the next time you do something that you don't think is that wicked because you're comparing it with somebody else's action that is very wicked. To not do the good that you know you ought to do (coughs) is every bit as wicked as being in bed with your neighbor's wife. (coughs) Every bit as wicked. We are called to rule and reign with Christ, to extend his kingdom on the earth, and to deny that opportunity is as wicked as to sleep with an idol. Don't put this in some other category. Let it land on your shoulders. Israel is actually serving you by recording their historical walk with the Lord so that you can learn about your walk with the Lord. Come on. And we have the audacity to look down on them as if it's not our problem as well. Now we're going to read verse 24 and you... You've got to imagine God saying this about you personally. I mean, we have have already been through several Hebrew words that mean a whole lot more worse things that we all do every day that we don't really think that we do them. Read verse 24 with that in mind. A wild donkey, accustomed to the desert, (coughs) sniffing in the wind in her cradle. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Man, now pause, pause real quick. This is what sin does to you. We say sin makes you stupid. This is how it makes you stupid. 
Sin makes you to where you are craving it more and more and more. And God says, you are just like a wild donkey that is craving a male. Now read verse 25. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. This statement, do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. That statement, this is God speaking to the foreign deities that are chasing after Israel. This statement is to the foreign deities that they don't have to weary themselves running after Israel. She is already running after them. They don't have to try anymore because Israel is so craving this lust and sin that she's running after them. Man, it's a bad day when the foreign power, the the, uh, idolatrous lesser gods don't even have to try. Keep reading the next verse. But you said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. But you said it's no use. It's no use to what? Turn back. Get the heck away from them. You said it is no use. This is what happens in a repeating cycle of sin. You don't even see the use in going back anymore. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. Israel is a pursuer. Not the foreign gods in this scenario. Israel is the pursuer. A slave to carnality. Israel is the plunder to captors that didn't have to run her down. And she will be punished by her choices. Now, we shouldn't think of that as just Israel because remember, they are our older brothers living for an example to us. This is what happens to us when we are unbridled pursuing sin and not heeding the correction of the Lord. As we go into verse 26, uh, all my... Cultural references are old, I'm sorry. This is the Perry Mason moment, okay? This is, uh, the case has been proven sufficiently, and the courtroom is gasping. Let's pick up in verse 26. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, when caught. so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings, and their officials, their priests, and their prophets. Only is the thief disgraced when... He's caught. I've been a pastor almost three decades. It means very little if you only showed disgrace because you were caught. The disgrace should come in examining God's character and looking at yours. Judging yourself so that you don't come under judgment. If you're caught, you're no better than any other thief. They're all disgraced when they're caught as God presents his case he's already giving the verdict that's the benefit of being the judge and the lawyer he says it you're caught he's not alleging something it's already been recorded in the heavens and it's caused desolation there the people the kings the officials the priests prophets alike The whole nation guilty. Now when you hear that, it is hyperbole. I want to clear that up. That doesn't mean that there's not a single person there. Jeremiah is an Israelite. We need to understand it is a picture that is being painted. It's a picture designed to warn the human soul and cause us to be so bereft over it that we betroth ourselves to him again. That's what we're hoping for yeah. this evening. Let's pick up in 27. They say to Wood, you are my father. 
Just pause there for a minute. <laughs> I'm going to allow your mind to wander. And I'm going to simply say that every perversion in sin you've ever seen always relates to misplaced fatherhood. I don't care what it is, what version it is, or how special they think it is. There's always a broken relationship with the father there. Please proceed. Come and save us! Hosanna! Hosanna, son of David! They're crying out for a savior when caught, like the previous verse. You know he is the only savior, but you only call on him after you see your impending judgment that results from you rejecting him. Man, let's put this in a context that we all can identify with. You got that relative who hates your guts, but professes to say that they love the Lord, and when they're in trouble... Who do they call? We're going to take this a little deeper, though. The thing that is worse than that is you having known his saving power and choosing to rely upon your own right arm, your own wisdom, your own direction, until after you've screwed it up and hurt everyone around you. Look, it would be easy to simply put this off as Israel. But remember, Peter gives a warning about this kind of behavior that was not about the lost, but was about God's household. We read it earlier, and I'll read it to you again. 2 Peter 2.20 If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ? Does anybody in the room know Him? Yes! If men and women like us are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Saints, before we hit verse 28, there are a couple things that we want to draw together here. We mentioned Manasseh earlier. Manasseh repented at the end, but that's not how he's recorded because there is a consequence to what is done. Ezekiel comments on this as well. A man who is righteous and turns from his righteousness, his righteous deeds will not be remembered. There are consequences to how the house of God deals with these matters. And it cannot be after you're caught or after you've wrecked the ship. It must be in an intimate relationship with the living God. So we have about 10 verses left to go. I hope it's as painful for you as it is me. (laughs) I want to draw attention to a concept that Judah is is hitting on. To say, you're my savior, that works when you're being saved from sin because you've become aware of savior. But when you continue to say, you are my savior, and it is not saving you from sin that you would commit, it's saving you from sin you just committed, The term is actually an indictment because you know he's the savior and you're committing it anyway. Do you understand the difference? Saying Hosanna is great the first time you become aware he's Hosanna, that he save us now. It's an indictment every time you say it after you have committed a sin since knowing he is your savior. Now, in reality, he is our savior in both cases. 
The point is, is that your own mouth and your own words are convicting you in that case. When you say Jesus is my savior and you mean from the sin that you planned to commit, did commit, and now are caught in committing, you calling him savior is an indictment against you. And Peter is saying that when you're overcome in that kind of situation, that it's worse for you than if you never knew he was your savior. At least those people never came to a knowledge of the truth. We're actually held accountable for the knowledge of the truth that we came into and what we went on to do with it. Do you know where Peter learned that from? Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. Come on. If we just put that context on much better footing, as we pick up in verse 28, consider what he's saying about having known him and what else they choose to do deliberately. Mm-hmm. Where, where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Wow, there's that word again. Charge. Charges. You've charged. Second time that word's come up for us. Look, the point here in these two verses is that God has a legitimate charge against his people. But they don't have reason to charge him with error. Now, you agree with that quickly enough. You agree with that easily enough. And I'm going to warn you, this might, this might hurt a little bit. It's as definitely we going to hurt a little bit. <laughs> as we were digging into this earlier, we got some revelation from the heavens about this. You know, Christians, they can be creative in the way that we charge God with error. You know, it doesn't necessarily just look like, hey, you're not a faithful God. You're not a God that never does wrong. That's obvious, right? Of course it is. Yeah. No, 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 no. What Christians do, what we do, we don't say, hey, God, you did something wrong. We just say that there is something wrong with us. And so because we have something wrong, because we are weak, because we are intimidated, we can't do what he's called us to do. I'm telling you, Christian, this is exactly the same thing as saying, God, you are wrong. Our God wants to empower us to stand up for his standard and to go after what he has promised. To go after what he wants us to do. That is standing with him. That is refusing to charge him with wrong because you know you've been called by him. You know what his plan is. Now it's time to step up and put your head up. And go after it. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 2 says in verse 1, You therefore have no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Hey, it's easy to get get angry with Israel in chapter 2, right? But the more fruitful exercise... What we're practicing tonight is to examine our own lives so that the second chapter of Romans does not become a noose around our neck. Pick up at verse 30 and go to 31. He said that now, but you'll understand it later. In vain I punished your people 
They did not respond to correction. Your sword has desired, devoured the, your prophets like a ravening lion. And God is recounting all of the times that He punished them. And He says they did not respond to correction. Over and over, God was faithful to punish them and correct them. You want to know something that's true about the Lord? His compassion and His pity are expressed in the frequency of correction. How do you know that God has compassion on you? Well, it's not how nice He makes you feel all the time. It's how often He actually takes the time to correct you. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost, it is not His condemnation on you. It's His approval that you are His Son and He wants to change you. Amen. That is His compassion. Now, rebellion and hardness of heart are expressed in the lack of response. When you have a lack of response, when they had a lack of response to God's correction, it shows the rebellion and hardness. Now, none of them would willingly say, yeah, I'm a rebellious and hard-hearted sinner, but their lack of response showed that. When you don't respond to God's compassion in correction, that is what is being shown in your heart. Now, when people say they and them and these pronouns, like, I don't know, maybe in today's racially sensitive environment, you'd go, what do you mean, you people? <laughs> I, want, I want to give you a key to understanding all that comes after this in Jeremiah. Are y'all ready for it? Yes. It's verse 31. You of this generation. I'm sorry, who? You of this generation. You of this generation. Not the Israelites that came before. Not the Israelites that come after. God's promises are irrevocable to Israel. But this generation is who he's speaking about. So when we get to chapter 3 and there's a divorce, he does not divorce Israel. You of this generation. Do you understand the difference? Yeah. To, let, to, to, to put that on better footing. Let's just work through what you already know in biblical history. This is very much like Joshua and Caleb. Their generation was judged. But they didn't get judged. And a remnant still went into the land. Because God said he would bring them into the land. But 99.99999% of them didn't because that generation was judged. But Israel's promise still remained and he raised up a generation that it would be fulfilled in. How will all Israel be saved? Well, how did all Israel enter the promised land? See, it's the same scenario. And if our theologians could grab hold of that, Well, I have no hope for them, but I do have hope for you. (laughs) Okay? Jesus also said, you adulterous generation. Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem, and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But Jeremiah was in that generation, and he himself was saved. So the promise didn't fail. Paul makes exactly the same point. It's not as if the promise had failed. I myself am an Israelite. Okay? When you think about this, if Jeremiah said it, if Jesus said it, and Paul says it, it's because it's a reoccurring problem in every generation. Yep. You of this generation. 
is the right way to understand the negative statements about Israel. It doesn't erase the positive statements that come before. It doesn't erase the positive statements that are coming later. It is you of this generation he's talking about. Yeah. Now, even if you don't get that, highlight it. <laughs> Go back to it. It may save your theology later. Amen. Uh, hey. Let's pick up in the next verse. Real quick, I oh. want to make a connection for you. You remember how Nick said earlier that we don't say the Lord can't do it or charge him with error? What we do is say that I have a problem and thus it cannot be done, but the net effect is the same. What was the sin of the generation of the Exodus? That they said we cannot go up. They are stronger than us. How did God take that? God took that as you're saying I can't do it. Oh, look, Judah did so good to help me with that. Because you sweet Christians... Struggle with insecurity and fear to the point that you're constantly trying to convince the rest of us of what you can't do. And it's an offense to God. If you are now in his bride, he says you can. And for you to keep saying, but I don't speak well, I don't do well, my tribe is the smallest tribe. You are insulting him, not yourself. I don't let my bride talk about herself that way. I say, hey, you're going to anger your husband. You're talking about my wife. Well, apparently, while I just thought that was a cute statement, it's exactly how God feels. So what if we just became conscious of his greatness and you stop talking about all of the things you don't do well? Oh, you know, I would just, I'd love to be in a church like that. <laughs> Can I give you an example for you for a moment? <laughs> you know, it's my first time to be up here with, this, with these gentlemen tonight. First time. Couldn't be any more excited. Don't you know that fear is right there alongside that excitement? Yeah. Don't you know that my flesh is crying out, hey, you can't do it, you can't speak, you can't this and that? You guys have felt that before. Yeah. Yeah. I know you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So what do you think the first thing that needed to go while we were praying through the tabernacle earlier today was? <laughs> that kind of fear. You know, you got to learn how to bow face down like Joshua and Caleb and say, No, no, we certainly can go up. We can do it! No, we certainly can speak. No, we certainly can because we know who our God is. Therefore, we know who we are. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. You know, one of my favorite things about the body that we're in is we get to share each other's study notes. This was not my discovery, and yet I feel it moving my own soul. Does a maiden forget her jewelry and a bride her wedding ornaments? You might say, uh, ha, halal. Hell no. <laughs> and yet in its context, it's a bit of a rhetorical question because, yes, they have. It reminds me of another passage in Isaiah 49 that we're not covering tonight. But it's about a mother forgetting her son. Something that should not be done has been done. You remember earlier in verse 20 where they broke off their yoke? 
See, that yoke was something that was treated as if it was heavy, as if it was to be broken off and shed from. The old ways of the past unhit yourself from the Older Testament. But that yoke was God's wedding adornment on his bride. His commands, his rules, his regulations, they were unique to her and not any other nation because she was special. Yeah. And that reminds us of Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30, and I'm going to read it, and my brother's going to comment on it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Is Jesus lying here? No! no. Oh, of course not! Hall hello! Hall hello! Oh no! Jesus is not lying. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You know, but when does his yoke get heavy? When does it get hard? Maybe when we see it as a burden. Yeah. Maybe when we see his commands, his law, his requirements of us as burdensome and not as a joy. You know, on that note, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Hallelujah! For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the truth is, is that the bride of Christ, the yoke that his people cast off of them, cast off of their shoulders, if they had been looking at that yoke in a right way, it would have been light, it would have been easy, it would have been a joy to them, and it would have been the very thing that ornamented them and proved to the rest of the world that they were his bride. See, when we get this twisted, we see it as a burden and we try to throw it off. It is the, it is the very thing that is our validation. It's the very thing that causes everyone else to see the glory of our King on us. All right, ladies. How many of you got a wedding ring on? Hold it up. Some of you got little sparkly stones next to it. Can you imagine how your husband would feel if you said this is just too big of a burden and you cast it off? That's what it's like to cast off the commands of God. Casting off wedding ornaments. And the prophet wanted you to feel that. Hey, let's pick up in verse 33 and go down to 35. How skilled you are at pursuing love. (laughs) Worst to women. women. Wait, wait, no, read it, read it again. Yeah. You haven't been married long enough to have one of these fights. <laughs> How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. <laughs> That's God mocking. On your, clo- on your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent. You say what? I am innocent. He's not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you, this generation, because you say, I have not sinned. 
Again, when you hear, I will pass judgment on you, you should remember that he's saying to that generation that's hearing it. Man, think about what is going on here. They are skilled at pursuing love, running after other archons, all the while saying, but I'm innocent. Wow. He will not pass judgment. He's not angry at me. But God's saying, I will pass judgment on you because of something. I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. That is what angers God the most about the situation is all the while doing what they're doing. They're just saying, I'm not sinning. God's not angry at me. That is what makes God the most angry. You have to ask yourself the question, what would happen if they just admit, I am sinning? What would happen if they just turn to their husband and say, change me, I don't want to be like this? Well, they might end up like the Samaritan praying with the Pharisee, beating their breast, saying, I am not worthy. Look, this calls to mind in John 9. Jesus says to, the, to another generation, because you claim that you can see, you will be judged more severely. That's John 9.41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Ooh, Man, friends, we have strange. to be careful what we are claiming that we can do. We have to be careful that what we are claiming if we are teachers, well, I know the word, well, I can see God's will clearly, well, I know what to do in a given situation. Friends, that brings more judgment on you if you're not living rightly. That is a very dangerous precipice to be living on. We've got uh, about 10 minutes, and it's good because there's two verses left. You have to understand that the generation that survived these things, like Ezra, Nehemiah that came out, that still knew that Israel was elect and they repented of sin even from generations before them, that set a very high standard. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day that you've been taught are such bad people, they're the descendants of men like Ezra and Nehemiah. They loved the book of Jeremiah. They had it memorized. So when Jesus says to them something like, because you claim you can see, your guilt remains, they recognize the reference. Mm -hmm. That's why they so often want to kill him. There's nothing that they could want to be associated with less than having washed themselves with launderer soap and have a stain inside them that they cannot hide. But the only cure for that is to admit that it's there and ask your husband to forgive you and cure you. And the one thing that he won't do is forgive you and cure you without you admitting what you've done. He he will not do it. (laughs) Okay? He'll come to terms with an unfaithful wife and make her faithful if she knows what she is. But he will not do it if she claims to be righteous the entire time. Mm -hmm. That was the being trapped between two truths of the first century church. And it's also why whores, that's a church word, huh? Whores and tax collectors were entering the kingdom first. They already knew they were stained. The biggest problem was with people that did not recognize their stain, and the whole nation had lost its way again, even though they had the book of Jeremiah. I don't know that we're in much different situation, to be honest, though. 
I, I think things are pretty well the same. I think we've been in Jeremiah's day for a very long time. I just want to be Jeremiah in Jeremiah's day. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 36. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? Usually changing your ways is a good thing. But it's not a good thing if your ways were correct with the Lord and you have changed from that. Keep going. You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands on your head. All right, uh, this more prophetic imagery, and Judah's doing it instinctively. They are chasing after lovers who don't have to pursue them. That picture is, come back, come back. And he's saying, you're going to leave from there as captives with your hands on your head, bound. Okay, That is hugely profound when you consider that the Psalms, you go back and review the Celestial Powers teaching, specifically Psalm 69. The people he's talking about were once captives to foreign gods, and he set out from Sinai and delivered them and brought back captives in his train that were now free men. Come on. Okay? It's a reversal of scenario. I chose you as my bride. I freed you. Now you've run after whoredom, and you're going to return to me as captives with your hands on your head. What a sad... There's no more miserable thing in all the world than somebody that was once freed that is now a captive to what they were freed from. Uh, These people tend to hate God in the worst way Mm -hmm. because the only other alternative would be to hate their own behavior and they're blind to it. Uh... If you would read verse 37, we have a real jewel for you right here at the end. You will also leave that place with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. Did the Lord reject them in this verse? No. No. The people they're going after are the ones that are rejected. The punishment of the Lord to this generation of Israelites is that they will be given over to the things they're trusting in, and the things they're trusting in are Egypt and Assyria. And Egypt and Assyria have already been rejected by the Lord. The behavior results in God bringing Babylon in to crush both kingdoms and Israel's enslavement in Babylon. Okay, that's that's what's happening here. You really want to read an enlightening prophetic picture? One that... I would probably call on one of you to read, but not going to do it tonight. Read the 23rd chapter of Ezekiel. Because if you thought this was graphic, that's graphic on a whole other level, and it's every bit as inspired as John 3.16. If only we could see the consequence of straying in advance. If only we knew where it would lead us in advance. But of course we can, yeah. because we have the mirror of God's word. And it shows us the result of our action even before we commit it, while we're still contemplating it. I, I have never committed a sin that would not have been averted by simply opening my Bible and dropping on my knees. Every time I have ever sinned, it was from the lack of dropping to my knees Asking for the Spirit and the Word to help me every single time. 
In other words, it was willful. I denied the very thing that would deliver me from the sin and relied on his forgiveness afterwards. That is a total abuse of God's grace. That changes grace into a license for immorality. But we want to end on a better note than that. On the note of the answer to our problems, I'm going to read to you out of Psalm 63, and I'm just going to read it. Justin's going to tell you about it. Picking up in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Yes. Earnestly, I seek you. Yes. My soul thirsts for you. Yes. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Same desert. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Yes, yes. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. It's free men. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. You're what? Easer. Somebody say helpmate. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to your right hand. What is clings? Debak. I'm united to you. You are my husband. I'm soul glued to you. I long for you. Your right hand upholds me. This is written by King David, the father of this generation that's being punished. He's writing to the Lord. This psalm is purely to the Lord. And he's writing to the Lord his own relationship, his own thoughts about the Lord, his own desires for the Lord, like a bride would write about her husband. Man, Israel at this point in Jeremiah's day has fallen from just managing their sin, to hiding their sin, to waiting for another king to come rescue them, enjoying times of peace, the highs of having relative peace and godliness in a time, and then plunging straight back into sin and trying to manage it further. What if they would have stirred up this relationship between husband and wife like David had? What if we would stir up that? What if we right now would cry out to the Lord like a bride longs for her husband? What if we would ignite those flames of a loving relationship between husband and wife and begin to debauch to him? Mm -hmm. I promise we'll find that a partnership with him like a husband and wife is a very beautiful thing. We would find that if if we get rid of all of this running after everything, And just ask the Lord, Lord, change me. I want to love you more. Lord, I love to love you. I want to love you more. If you would cry out like David had, you would find yourself changing on the inside and becoming more stable like David is. I love the part where he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Has anybody in this room been praying through the tabernacle? 
And you get to that moment at the throne room of God where you're beholding him like a husband and wife face to face. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that is what leads you into being in like an easer like relationship. That is what leads you into that kind of joyful praise relationship where you're no longer running after everything around you. You're just enjoying him. You want to hear something really beautiful in our last 10 seconds? David also had committed adultery. But his response was, you are my helpmate. My soul clings to you. And the Lord lifted him out of that and gave him a seat unlike any other king. He made way for the king that frees us all because he's the groom and you are the bride. And he does not want to share you, his glory, with anyone else. Nick, would you bring us to a close? You know, I have an idea. There's a particular woman that I am proud of her hard work as of late. Come on. I would like Mandy Sheridan to read Malachi Woo! 4. Yeah. Anointing! And, and uh, then maybe we'll work through it together. While she's turning there, we let our minds drift back to John 9. It was the ones who claimed to be without sin that were held in contempt. Saints, I got good news. <laughs> Through bold, honest transparency, we can become the men of God that we were called to be. Yes. You watched it demonstrated twice by men who were speaking tonight. <laughs> you know why? Because we're aspiring to be like David and know what it is to grow closer to that holy place in that throne. Mandy, you got it for us? Malachi 4. 4, 1, and 2. released from the stall. That picture that is painted in Malachi is equally as dark as Jeremiah. There's a fire that is burning up everyone and everything that will not follow him. And it says it's not, there's not going to be a root or a branch left. And yet that wasn't the end of the passage. Except for those who revere my name. I want to suggest that if we revive our reverence our all for the mighty one of Jacob. For that saving one that rescued us from the beginning. That like Miss Mandy over there who is daily being renewed on eagle's wings. The son of righteousness is around her because she reveres him. That the same can be true for each of you and true for us. When we look directly into that altar, into that labor and say... Lord, 
I hate what I was and I have been unfaithful, but I want to be what you are making me into. Yes. And then we let all excuses, all washing of soap to hide the issue fade away in this room that families might become what they've been destined for for a decade. That in every area we rise with the sun of righteousness tonight. Amen. That we soar on his eagle's wings. We're going to pray together. Let's stand up. The Spirit of God is going to help us tonight to get those internal stains completely and totally cleared. You know, He's also going to help us tonight. Right before we pray, He's going to help us tonight. Those, those things that we feel like are a burden that we know are not destined to be a burden. They're destined to be a joy. They're destined to be a light weight on our shoulders. They're destined to be something that is beautiful, that we long to carry, that gives us a renewed distinction, that shows the glory of our King to the rest of the world. This is our opportunity tonight. I'll give this to Pastor Matt. Tonight, church, we have an opportunity to devour an opportunity to unite and be glued to our God. Amen. But it has to start with the right process, the right combination to unlock that treasure. Tonight, what you should have overwhelmingly heard is the faithfulness of our God to us. The overwhelming evidence that He has proven Himself again and again and again, and He has never wavered or faltered in his commitment to us. Come on, you can think of right now clear moments of how he has spoken to you about you. He has shown you who you are. He has proven that he has given you your mouth and put his words within it. You lack no good thing. And in staring at the heavenly heights of evidence of who our God is, we then are able to properly measure who we are. So as we take this approach of knowing our Father, overwhelming evidence of His faithfulness to us, let's begin to weigh our hearts in this presence right now. And at this altar, but more importantly, the bronze altar. Let's put to death our faithlessness. Let's let it be Crucify, so that we can move on to a cure. Amen. A cure that changes who we are. Amen. You don't have to stay in that state of being faithless. You have the opportunity to become equally as faithful as He is. Amen. Mighty God, we lift up 